about 10.30 last night, I thought I'm going to have to edit the message, <laughs> change it to the topic of depression. <laughs> but that last minute touchdown saved me all that work. By the way, um, thank you for all the birthday wishes this past week. My birthday was Tuesday. And a lot of you had birthdays. It's really an amazing week. A lot of uh, Linworth people have birthdays on this week. So happy birthday to all of you as well that, that uh, celebrated your birthday this past week. Well, as Nick said, um, we, we're going to do something a little different the next actually seven or eight weeks. And we just finished the book Second Kings. And what we typically do here at Linworth is we preach through books of the Bible. But there are times and moments where we will do topical, we'll address specific topics that we think are present needs, things that people need to hear about. And so we're going to do that over the next seven or eight weeks. We're going to begin with forgiveness uh, for three weeks. And then after that, we're going to tackle some of the difficult issues right now that are dividing our culture. Things like abortion or gender confusion, our sexual ethics, and how does the Bible address these issues in a very holistic way? And so we're going to tackle those, and, and then guess what? By the time we get to the end of that, it'll be time for Advent and Christmas. So that's how quickly time flies by when you're having fun. On forgiveness, let me begin with a story from my own journey. About the age of 40, I went through a personal crisis. And as a crisis can often do, I was forced to address parts of my life that had been ignored for too long. There were recesses in my heart that were like a locked box and had to be pried open. The crisis served to break the lock and pull out the parts of me that were slowly rotting. Issues I did not realize that were bearing bad fruit like anger and emotional shallowness. The source of what lay rotting was the lack of forgiveness towards others. I had addressed sins that I committed to God when I became a Christian. I even sought to address the sins that I committed against others. And I had done okay in life so far up to that point. So I thought, I graduated from college, I was married, I had children, I owned a home, I was serving as a pastor, and I had good friends. But, but, I was also easily angered, and I was becoming more and more guarded, and I could be driven with work. And though I had what I thought was a strong marriage, there was a level of emotional distance from my wife that I did not realize. Well, what lay behind the anger and emotional shallowness? Well, I had not recognized that the sins committed against me had not recognized them, nor had I weighed their emotional impact on me. I was still angry with those hurts. And even though they had been buried over several decades under an avalanche of excuses, denials, and self-blame, and why the emotional shallowness? Because in the process of those excuses and denials and self-blame, I had suppressed feelings that were too overwhelming or too difficult to put into words. I learned not to feel. 
I chose not to feel by turning off the emotional spigot. What the crisis had revealed was an emotional deadness in me that was very troubling. And so God led me through a process of Holy Spirit-led counseling with a Christian counselor. And through that time, God both exposed the wound, but also applied the salve that I needed for healing. I learned to express the grief of what I had experienced and what I had lost. I was able to say what was done to me was wrong without excusing others or without self-blame. And at that point, and only at that point, could I forgive and could I release. Forgiveness, my friends, is a massive subject. Such an important topic, deeply personal, as I have just sought to illustrate, yet also a universal theme, is it not? Can I not point to hundreds of movies and art and books around the theme of redemption and forgiveness? I've been watching a movie lately starring Nicole Kidman and Colin Firth called The Railway Man. Maybe some of you have seen it. It explores the heart of a British soldier named Neil Lomax who has returned home after bring, being brutalized in a Japanese World War II POW camp. And we follow his journey in the movie. We see the impact of his trauma, the wreckage that it plays in his relationships. And we follow him from wishing serious harm on the most vicious perpetrator to finding his finding a way to forgive. Forgiveness. It's everywhere around us in our art. Forgiveness is even part of our political calculations. We are asked to forgive the political indiscretions of our politicians. We are asked to forgive our entertainers and athletes when they publicly mess up. And it is part of the ongoing debate in our culture as to if or how to apply forgiveness and when to apply it, or when to apply justice to wrongdoing. Let me say it again, it's a little confusing. It is part of the ongoing debate, forgiveness, in our culture as to if or how to apply it when we are looking at bringing justice to wrongdoing. So why should you even listen this morning? Why should you come back the next two weeks? Because forgiveness cuts across every heart in this room. Receiving it, giving it, experiencing it, or suffering from the lack of it as it shoots through us sideways in guilt, or resentment, or anger, or depression. So before we review our outline for this morning, let's stand. Will you stand, please? And I'm going to read a text from the Bible that describes forgiveness. I think this is the perfect place where we need to begin. And it's from Psalm 103, 1 through 12. You can follow along in the Bible text or the Bible in front of you or on your device. Again, Psalm 103, verses 1 through 12. Praise the Lord, my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins 
and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. This is God's word. Will you pray with me in response to his word? Oh, Father, every one of us this morning here thanks you that you are forgiving and that you are slow to anger. And through Jesus' work, you removed our sin as far as the east is from the west. Your love, God, fills the earth and it reaches up to the very clouds. You crown us with dignity. You don't give us what we deserve. We deserve anger and wrath, but you have made grace available. You are our healer and redeemer. You are so good to us, God. We wait on you. And we acknowledge this morning, everything is not as it should be. We are in process. You are working. And you are working, God, justice for the oppressed. You are working righteousness. You are bringing everything into right relationship with you and the creation. Oh God, from the deepest parts of who we are, we say thank you. With our entire being, Father, we say thank you. Amen. Amen. You can take a seat. Okay. Three things we want to talk about this morning on the topic of forgiveness. Number one, what is our cultural moment that we are in? And we'll raise the question, will forgiveness be washed away as a cultural value? Secondly, I want to talk about the history of forgiveness, maybe some information you've never had before. And thirdly, what the Bible says about forgiveness and particularly for our moment that we're in. Let's start with one, our cultural moment. As I said, forgiveness now more than ever is part of our national conversation. And the value that we once placed on forgiveness is fading. We live in a climate where the demands to hold others accountable is at a fever pitch. You remember the old imagery of mobs with a pitchfork carrying out vigilante justice? Remember that? It has an updated version. And it includes uh, justice seekers sitting safely behind a screen in their bedroom or their basement. And it's now, rather than mobs with pitchforks that rally together, it is those on social media collectively calling for blood and for reputation and for jobs. 
I mean, what happened? It's not only the increase of our technological sophistication. Part of our present reality is that the mental and emotional pain suffered from human sin, whether it's abuse or neglect or unfair treatment, it has been put under a microscope. And stories told by victims have made us aware of the life long devastating impact when human beings treat one another badly. Now, indeed, some of these stories have been and are exploited for political agendas. And even though that's the case, the human cost is still there remaining real and raw. Now, in some instances, sadly, Justice is averted, and the concept of forgiveness is leveraged to excuse or perpetuate evil. Because of this, we are in the midst of a backlash, a collective outrage, atonement for sin is demanded, and forgiveness is abandoned. Now, this outrage has spilled over into interpersonal relationships. So if the person you once considered a friend disagrees with you on any number of hot button social issues or how you voted or what you posted on Facebook, then you are canceled, uninvited, excommunicated. For saying the wrong thing, you can become the 21st century version of the untouchable. Tim Keller, in his last book before his passing, is called Forgive, and this book was part of the inspiration for this series. And particularly in the first two points of our outline, I'm going to lean on his research so that we can have perspective on what's occurring around us. Keller cites a tweet by a woman named Elizabeth Bruning uh, from the New York Times, and she wrote this regarding the ongoing conflict around forgiveness. She writes, there's just something unsustainable about an environment that demands constant atonement, but actively disdains the very idea of forgiveness. Now this response, her response to the, this tweet was so overwhelming and is so telling about our cultural moment, her inbox became full of upset emails. So much so that she deleted what she had written for fear it was being taken out of context. However, in an interview, live interview, she repeated her concern about this outraged sense of justice and the desire to make people atone for their sins, she wrote this, or said this. I see in American culture how offended people seem to be by the very idea of forgiveness itself. They seem to find it immoral, and I think that is very disturbing. Now, others who reject forgiveness attack what they see to be the very source of forgiveness, that being the teachings of Jesus and the Bible. And they subsequently blame Christianity. Keller cites an article by a blogger named Sabine Birdsong entitled, To Hell with Forgiveness Culture. The author writes this, 
We continue to believe forgiveness makes a person superior, and if they can't manage something so simple, the fault lies with them. This author blames this on a deeply ingrained religious hangover from Christianity. Going on, she writes, the emphasis on forgiveness tends to humanize perpetrators, making it harder for them to be held accountable. People love a good redemption story. This forgiveness narrative is nothing but a mere plot device spun to give character depth to the perpetrator at the expense of their victims. Finally, in a follow-up article, the author spelled out what is needed. She says, we need to rewrite the outdated narratives of forgiveness, i.e. the Bible, the pseudo-spiritual fairy tale of redemption and forgiveness over the inherent right for people to not be abused. This is the cultural moment that we're in. Now, notwithstanding, let's talk about this, this blog for a moment. Notwithstanding the obvious contempt for our faith, are there parts of what she says that we affirm? Certainly, yes. The Bible does not promote forgiveness without accountability. In the psalm we read, the psalmist wrote, the Lord works righteousness and justice for the oppressed. There is accountability, though it may not be fully realized on this side of eternity. But she is expressing, and this is the point of quoting her, she is expressing the moment of cultural backlash that we are in. A moment where the finely tuned tension between forgiveness and accountability is swinging wildly in one direction, demanding atonement. And in the process, we wonder, will the quality of forgiveness be washed away? Again, this is the cultural moment that we are in. Now, that really leads us into our second question, particularly her attack as the Christian faith being the source of forgiveness. Is that correct? What is the history of forgiveness? What, back with, you know, what background can we uh, give this morning to gain some perspective on the, where our thinking about forgiveness comes from? Some of you may have heard this name, Hannah Arendt. She's considered a, a brilliant, she's passed away now, but she was, she was born into a Jewish German family and forced to leave Germany in 1933. She's regarded as one of the most influential political philosophers of the 20th century. Her most famous work, if you had a poli-sci class, you'll remember this. Her most famous work was a 1951 book entitled The Origins of Totalitarianism. In that book, she described the absolute rule from either the left or the right, Stalin's Russia and Hitler's Germany. Now, she's not a Christian, but she wrote this about Jesus and forgiveness. Quote, the discoverer of the role of forgiveness in human affairs was Jesus of Nazareth. And the fact that he made this discovery in a religious context and articulated it in religious language is no reason to take it any less seriously in a strictly secular sense. I hope you see what she's saying there. 
She's saying that even though this is religious, it spills, it should spill into our secular world. She's citing Jesus and the teachings of the Bible as our source of forgiveness. And now you might ask, does this really hold up? Is that really the case? What about uh, classical society, the Greek Roman uh, uh, world where uh, certainly you, you know that the, the Greek and Roman world is held, still held in uh, the United States and much of Western Europe as being the ideal of human civilization, the apex of human civilization. Was forgiveness in the classical world a highly prized virtue? One would think so. But listen to what one scholar wrote about this. He said, the modern concept of forgiveness in the full or rich sense of the term did not exist in classical antiquity. That is in Greece or Rome, or at all events, it played no role whatever in the ethical thinking of those societies. Another scholar who wrote a book called Forgiveness, a philosophical exploration, wrote this. He said, it is surprising and illuminating that forgiveness is not seen as a virtue by the ancient Greek philosophers. Illustrations from the Iliad of Homer show that the classical pre-Christ world did have a concept of pity, but it was not the same or as robust as biblical forgiveness. It was more a concept of to excuse or to lessen the penalty, but not to forgive. As opposed to that, the central word for forgiveness in the Bible is aphiomi, meaning to legally acquit or cancel, forgive a debt. You can look up that word in Romans 4, 7, or Ephesians 1, 7, or Colossians 1, 14. You either find that word or its related word, which is aphiasis, the verb form. You see, Romans valued strength and honor and earning respect, and if needed, to secure respect through brute strength. And if you earned your place in society through your strength, you were awarded social honor. While other groups of people, those considered weak, such as women and slaves, could never attain to that level of strength and social honor. And so in to this Greek and Roman world, imagine it, in the first century, into that Greek and Roman mentality came followers of Jesus. And followers of Jesus had a different message. And that message was embodied in their actions. You see, early Christians were rejected in the Roman Empire, namely because of the political implications of their faith. Early con Christians confessed that Jesus is Lord rather than Caesar is Lord. Jesus was a checkmate to Caesar's, thus Caesar's power, and the Christians were willing to die for it. If you know anything about Roman history, the once democratic, very democratic, and once famous Roman Senate, by this point in history was merely reduced to a rubber stamp for whatever the Caesars desired. The only entity in the empire that questioned this absolute power were 
Christians. So in the midst of horrible persecution, loss of jobs, home, reputation, or even life, followers of Jesus did not respond according to the Greek and Roman worldview. They did not retaliate, nor did they seek revenge. They brought about a wholly different response than demanding respect by the show of strength. Nor did they adopt protecting one's social status at all costs, but rather they followed the ways of Jesus. Peter, of course, one of Jesus' closest friends, who was familiar with suffering, suffering, wrote this. First Peter 2 said, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Early Christians recognized that Jesus had come as a suffering servant, and they followed him in that path. They also believed Jesus was coming again as the great judge who will right all wrongs, who will hold, hold all wrongdoers accountable. And that all-encompassing hope gave them courage to persevere without resentment. And by what they said and by what they did, Christians brought an entirely different way of thinking and living, which, by the way, friends, we've still been living in the residue of that today. Right? Now it's fading. But what you grew up with in your life thinking about forgiveness is a residue of what these early Christians lived and believed and practiced. You see, in the world religions, forgiveness pointing to canceling a debt is unique to the Christian faith. There is forgiveness in Islam. Allah does forgive but the grounding of his forgiveness is without any atonement. There is no cost to him offering forgiveness. The Bible conversely teaches that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. We'll come back to why that's important. In the Eastern religions, there is self-improvement through karma, but the concept of forgiveness is so blurred and weakened because the concept of individual responsibility and personal evil is so blurred that it blurs and it weakens the very concept of forgiveness. Comparing what the Bible says about forgiveness to other worldviews and other religions gives us perspective on who is the source of forgiveness. The blogger I quoted earlier is correct. Christianity and the teachings of Jesus are the source of forgiveness and redemption stories. Let's go to our final point then. What does the Bible actually say about forgiveness? And how does the Bible speak to the cultural moment that we are in? I'd like you to look at an early scripture with me. It'll be on the screen, but it's Exodus 34, if you want to look it up. Genesis, Exodus, second book of the Bible, chapter 34. 
There were moments in biblical history where literally God introduced himself to his people beginning with communication of his name. Hi, I'm Chris. Okay? Like literally God does that. We'll see it in a moment. But it's particularly significant in a Hebrew world because in the Hebrew world, names carried great significance pointing to one's characteristics. And God reveals himself progressively to the Old Testament, revealing new names at critical times. And as he reveals himself progressively to the Old Testament, it finally brings us to the New Testament where in Jesus we have the fullest and most glorious revelation of who God is. But in Exodus 34, we have one of these epic moments where time stands still. God is giving Moses instruction about the tabernacle, how Israel will worship. And on the top of Mount Sinai, he gives to Moses instructions in the form of stone tablets. And then Moses descends from the mountain in order to bring it to the people. Now, you that know the story know this is the second ed edition of this, right? This is the second time this has taken place. The last time he went to the top of Mount Sinai, things didn't go well. He took a little longer than expected. The people grew restless, and they ended up worshiping the image of a golden calf in direct disobedience to the newly made covenant with God, their newly made covenant with God, their promise to God. Now in that worship, they would have thrown themselves into the accompanying pagan sexual practices. Some said it would have been like an orgy that Moses came down to. There was likely crazed and frenzied drunkenness. That's how the pagan uh, worship ceremonies unfolded. Imagine Moses coming down to this. I mean, this was the worst possible start that you could imagine in the relationship between God and his people. In a weak human analogy, this will be like catching your new wife or new husband with another lover within the first few weeks of your marriage. But in chapter 34, God gives Moses and the people another chance. Look at verse 4. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up to Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name. And literally it's Yahweh. Yahweh, I am your promise-keeping God. Yahweh, I am your redeeming God. I'm the redeemer God. I'm the God who makes promises. I'm the God who keeps promises. I am the God who redeems you. Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellious and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. How important is this introduction of God's name? And how important is this revelation 
more than 20 times all or part of this passage is repeated in the Bible. We just read about it. We read a section of it in the Psalms scripture that we read earlier. Now, what do we note about this passage, right? At first glance, we're a little perplexed. All these beautiful qualities of compassion and love in the beginning, but then there's a turn. He holds accountable. He punishes. Forgiveness is there, but so is punishment to the third and fourth generation, to children and grandchildren. I mean, why that? Well, again, to answer this question, I first note the contrast here. The blessing to a thousands, the blessing to thousands, the implication here is that the blessing is to a thousand generations as opposed to the punishment to three or four. And again, the, if you want to cross-reference, look at Deuteronomy 7, 9 to see that the implication is a thousand generations. And as to the impact of sins, the sins of parents, well, friends, recent research on family systems has brought out the clear truth on this. It is a sociological reality. I mean, do your own genogram, and you will find that sin patterns unchecked run like clockwork through family lines unless something or someone breaks the chain. But we still, we look at this passage and we wonder, is God merciful or is he vengeful? There is love, but also accountability. He will not let the guilty go unpunished. We wonder, how can he hold the two together? Well, how does God maintain his love? Or some versions say loyal love. He maintains it by forgiveness. But again, someone may object to this forgiveness. I mean, what if someone has robbed from you? What is most valuable to you, right? What if someone takes from you what is most valuable? Is forgiveness fair? Does it trivialize what is evil? Does it empower the perpetrator? You see, if you feel this tension, friends, then you understand the storyline that runs throughout the Old Testament. You feel the same tension of the Old Testament prophets who longed to understand these things. They looked into them and longed to understand them. How can a just God who desires a relationship with his people and he loves them unconditionally, how can he still hold them accountable for their sins and their acts of injustice and punish them? The Old Testament prophets were not sure. But today, you and me, with the entire Bible in our hands, we have the whole of God's salvation history. We have the whole storyline. And we know that God found a way to stamp his character of mercy and justice into a single act of redemption. This tension, this same tension, and what God did 
is described by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3. Turn with me there if you would. Romans chapter 3. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. If you've got the chair Bible in front of you, the sixth book of the New Testament, it'll also be up, up here. Romans 3. I want you to try to capture the flow of the argument here. We, we literally could spend uh, hours breaking down this passage, but we just have a few, few moments. Paul wrote, For all have sinned and fall short. Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just, so as to be just, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Okay, do you capture here the flow of this argument? We are forgiven freely only through grace. A gift from God, unmerited favor of God. We are loved and forgiven. But I think here that Paul, by where he goes, he anticipates the pushback. But Paul, what about the justice of God? Is that simply shoved aside? Is that fair? And what Paul is showing us is that the cross does not compromise God's justice, but is actually revealed by it. You see, the cross shows that God takes sin seriously. So seriously that Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus, God in human form, was offered as a sacrifice. He came as a man and died a criminal's death on it. The cross, Paul is saying, shows that God does indeed punish sin as Jesus absorbed the penalty of our sin in his own person. The cross does not eliminate or take away the justice of God. You see, again, let me offer the alternatives here. You notice that God, as in Islam, does not just wish away sin by fiat, by just a spoken word. God does not simply wave a magic wand and say to the offender, oh, you're forgiven. No, because that would, that would indeed trivialize evil. That would be grossly unjust to the victim, and it would empower the perpetrator. You see, at the cross, mercy and justice kiss. They meet. Jesus voluntarily gave his life for the cost that justice demanded. And through the cross, the offender can find mercy for his or her debt that has been paid by another. So if we step back for a moment and we ask the question, what does forgiveness do? What does the Christian 
concept of forgiveness do? Does it eclipse accountability? Does it excuse sin? Does it circumvent justice with feel-good redemption stories, leaving victims in its wake as the abuser enjoys his or her life? And the answer from the cross is an emphatic no. The cross proves God takes justice and evil seriously, so seriously that God in human form would suffer, be tortured on a cross. Let me step in this, uh, let me describe how then a Christian steps into the marketplace of ideas. You see, the Christian who understands God's heart would advocate for a system of justice that holds people accountable, that does not leave the guilty unpunished, but, or maybe I should say and rather than but, and in a beautiful paradox would also say to those whom we ascribe the worst evil, the child predator, the pornographer, the opiate dealer, the abusive husband, the neglectful mom, the brutal military torturer, the self-righteous religious person. As Christians, we would say in a beautiful paradox, you can experience forgiveness vertically. You can experience forgiveness from God even while you are punished for your sins in human justice horizontally. Do you see the beautiful paradox there? The paradox of grace and the cross. The cross does not remove justice from the equation. And to those that still say God is unfair, to those who still say that no, God, you're still unfair for what's happened to me. We have to remember that Jesus taught that every human heart contains evil. You see, when we're beset by resentment, when we find that we have the inability to forgive, what that means is we've never taken assessment of our own heart and our own spiritual condition. Because when, resent, when we're wracked by resentment and cannot forgive, it means that we believe that person's sin is so far greater than mine. And we fail to realize that Jesus taught every heart contains evil and has the potential for terrible, unjust actions. Put a person in the right circumstances, and who knows what is in their hearts? Who knows what evil can manifest itself in ways previously thought unimaginable? You see, knowing that evil lies within my own heart and that Christ still forgave me, made forgiving those who had wounded me the only reasonable and sensible option. How could I hold back forgiveness? when Christ so freely forgave me. Toshaki Nagisi was the Japanese torturer of Eric Lomax in the story that I mentioned earlier. 
Many years after World War II, Lomax's wife, Patty, through various clues, amazing, she identified Nagisi in an article in a paper called the Japan Times. And the article was describing, of course, this is, this is uh, 40 years later, 40 years after World War II. And the article described Nagisi's battle with heart disease. And in it, Nagisi stated that every time he suffered a heart attack, he had flashbacks of what he did in that Japanese military POW camp, the torture that he inflicted on Neil Lomax and others. Every heart attack, he had terrible flashbacks. He too, like Lomax, was beset by nightmares. And Nagisi was beset by guilt, and he spent a lifetime seeking forgiveness and peace, trying to make reparations. In that effort, he became a devout Buddhist, and as a part of his atonement, financed a Buddhist temple near the River Kwai, which is where those terrible things happen. Lomax's wife, Patty, reached out to him in a letter writing, how can you be forgiven, Mr. Nagisi, if this particular former Far Eastern prisoner has not yet forgiven you? In response, of, in response to her, Nagisi wrote back to Patty saying, the dagger of your letter thrusted me into my heart to the bottom. So in 1993, Patty, knowing the deep suffering, the still four decades of the deep suffering of her husband, arranged for an emotional reunion. You see a picture. This is Lomax here, the man standing to the right. He's holding his book called The Railway Man, which is what the movie was based on. And that is his torturer, Tashiki Nagisi, standing to his left. The, the above picture is Colin Firth in the movie. The reason that I'm concluding with this story is I don't have some great salvation story for Nagisi, but the reason I'm concluding this story is I'm trying to illustrate how desperate the search for forgiveness is. Whether you're a torturer or whether you're just a self-righteous person, the search for forgiveness is desperate. And I don't know this man, Nagisi. I don't know his story. Maybe before the end of his life, he got on his knees and he beat his chest and he cried out to God, save me, have mercy on me, I am a sinner. Perhaps he did that. Only God knows. But as much as we might applaud Nagisi for his works of repentance, as I said before, Buddhism can offer him no true forgiveness. It's simply not there because there is no sacrifice for sin in that system. And the forgiveness offered by Lomax certainly speaks to his guilt horizontally, but it does not solve his ultimate problem, which is his sin or our sin against God. For with God, you and me as created beings, within that relationship is our primary need for forgiveness, for all of our sin is ultimately against God. For when by our words, our actions, we injure another, we are tearing down a person who is made in the image of God. 
And so I conclude by saying, we are like Nagisi in this way. We are like him in this way. We all need forgiveness and we all feel the need for forgiveness. And it comes out in our attempts to make reparations to satisfy our guilt. And by the very virtue of seeking to live a good life, we testify to ourselves and to others that we know we need forgiveness. And we all need a savior who saves us, not because of our goodness, not because of the sincerity of our reparation attempts, but because it is, it is in his nature to love and forgiveness, and he has made forgiveness possible through Jesus. If only we will believe in him and ask him to do so. Will you pray with me? Father, there are moments of time where you want to reveal to us how incredibly awesome this gift of forgiveness is. Thank you for what Jesus, as a man, as the God-man, did for us. And I pray this morning, Father, that wherever we are, and I sense, Father, that there are those in the room this morning who need to receive forgiveness, maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time, to again become like a little child and receive the forgiveness you offer. Others, Father, in this room, there is someone in their life that they are having the most difficult time forgiving and releasing that, that, that guilt. Father, I pray this morning in the name of Jesus that you would empower them this morning to be able to release those that they've been unable to forgive, to give forgiveness. God, your heart is so big, your heart is so generous, you are willing and ready to forgive the worst of us. And Father, that includes all of us. None of us can stand before you and say we are self-righteous. So Father, for those this morning, empower them to be able to give forgiveness, to receive forgiveness and to give forgiveness and to walk in power and freedom. Help us, God, now as we sing, as we worship, as we think about forgiveness. Help us to enter in, God, to healing and to enter into a moment of absolute, childlike, pure adoration of all that you've done for us. In Christ's name, amen.